Okay, today we are beginning a new series, and it's going to be on the Book of Romans. Now, I know that I've done this book before. In fact, just even in Emmanuel Fellowship, we went through the Book of Romans back in 2015. We did it in 2003. In fact, I was kind of going through my notes, and uh, since 1993, I have actually taught the Book of Romans seven times. And uh, you might say, is it all that important? And the answer is yes, it's very important. The book of Romans has spiritual truths that are foundational for us. They need to be studied over and over and over. And I have found that most Christians actually are weak in some of the most obvious truths of the book of Romans. Personally, I've gone through the book of Romans even more times than what I've taught it, you know, uh, and every time that I go through the book of Romans, I find it more beautiful and more powerful than I did before. Um, as always with the longer series, we may occasionally leave this series for a Sunday or maybe even several Sundays if it seems necessary. And, uh, and in this particular time we're going through the book of Romans, our main focus is going to be through chapter, is, is going to be in chapters 3 through 8. Although we're also going to look at the rest of the book, but not nearly as thoroughly. Also, even in the verses, even through the chapters 3 through 8, we're not going to go through every detail of every verse. You know, that would take years. Actually, a well-known preacher in London in the 1900s did a series on the book of Romans. Some of you have probably heard of him, uh, Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones. And he began teaching the book verse by verse in 1955 at a midweek service study that was attended by hundreds and I think toward the end thousands of people. And he continued close to 14 years until he passed away in, I think it was 1968. And, uh, and he had only made it to the first part of Romans 8. And yes, it's that rich. By the way, I do have some of his uh, condensed versions of some of those messages. This is just in chapter 1. So you can kind of see this is a uh, uh, Romans is really, really rich. Over the years, Romans has been one of my favorite books, and I know I say that about a lot of books, usually the one I'm kind of studying. But it is a book that really needs to be studied as a whole. Sure, there's benefit from teaching, you know, a verse or a passage, or I know a few years ago at Emmanuel Fellowship, we uh, went through Romans 8, I think probably took about 10 or 12 weeks to do that. But you really can't fully understand and fully appreciate the book of Romans unless it is studied as a whole. Every chapter builds upon the previous chapter. Verses build upon the previous uh, verses. I like to say it's like a good movie or a good book. And I know some of you say, well, I never really thought of Romans like a good movie. Well, maybe you just never really studied it. So in this series, I believe we're going to get a good understanding of our great salvation which we have in Jesus Christ. In Romans, the gospel is explained. It helps to get rid of a lot of confusion, which by the way, there is a lot in the body of Christ today. The book also tells us how the gospel enables us 
or empowers us to actually live out the Christian life. And that too is really needed for today. I know some people um, think the gospel is for the non-believers. But no, it is for non-believers, but it's also for believers. In fact, uh, in Romans 1, I think it's verse 15. We'll get to it next week. Uh, it talks about how, uh, you know, Paul says, I long to preach the gospel to you, talking to believers. And so the gospel is for believers too. This book will teach us how to gain victory over those difficult areas with which we've long struggled. And that's probably the case for so many of us. Uh, the book will also teach us how to overcome temptation. The book will give us greater understanding of who we are in Christ. And I think also the book will help us to articulate, explain, and even share the gospel with others, believers and non-believers. The book of Romans is foundational for understanding the rest of the New Testament and maybe even a lot of the Old Testament. Without it, without a good understanding of the book of Romans, we're subject to the up and down Christianity that sadly so characterizes many Christians. Many, for a lack of foundation, are yanked around by the enemy. Romans addresses the deep-seated insecurity inside of us and uncertainty in people and elevates us to a place where we're on solid ground. As many of us have heard many times over the last three or four years, there's been a big exodus from the church in Western Christianity. And I'm talking about not only the United States and Canada, but also Latin America, Europe. Just It's just unbelievable how many people are just leaving the church. Not that they're uh, not, or they're, they're denying the faith, but they're just leaving the church. And, and they're seeking into kind of a comfortable lifestyle. And there's many reasons for that, but one of the reasons is a lack of good biblical understanding. So I want to encourage you to read over the passages we're studying, listen to the videos again, and try not to miss any of the sessions. Okay? So today what I'm going to do, we're not actually going to even jump into the book of Romans. I want to give a background to the church in the New Testament times because without that, we're not going to fully understand a lot of what Romans is talking about. So I'm going to give an overview of the New Testament. I mean, obviously in 30, 40 minutes, it's going to be really fast and I'm going to leave out a lot. So don't come to me later. Oh, you forgot to mention about Dorcas. Well, you know, I, there's going to be a lot of things I'm not going to mention, but at least I want to kind of give the overall flow. So the book of Acts is really the best place to start with understanding the early church. Acts 1 and 2, the church begins, as you remember, and a lot of this is just kind of a refresher for us, but sometimes it's just good to kind of just go over the overview. But uh, Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he, he told his group of disciples, a small group of disciples, not the multitudes, actually there are about 120 of them, to wait in Jerusalem for what he had promised, which was what? The Holy Spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they do. They meet in an upper room. Then on the day of Pentecost, 
just 10 days after he ascends, the Holy Spirit falls on them and, uh, and, you know, and they were excited. They were praising God. They were speaking in other languages, tongues. They were praising God. And uh, a lot of people kind of, you know, were saying, what's going on here? You know, and some people say, ah, they're just drunk. And Peter gets up and says, no, no, no one's drunk here because it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I'll tell you what's going on. And Peter, who just weeks before he denied the Lord three times, is filled with a boldness from the Holy Spirit. And he just explains, you can read about it in Acts 2, you know, he just explains the gospel in just a powerful way. The crowd kind of says, well, what can we do? And he says, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, 3,000 souls or joined to the community of believers. So the church basically started off with 3,000, well, 3,120 people on, uh, you know, uh, the day of Pentecost. And that was roughly around 30 AD. Now I'm going to be giving some dates and I know there's some different ideas that I can kind of even argue, well, maybe it was this date is this date, but for the sake of the overview, I'm just going to give some dates and at least you can get the chronology. So uh, uh, these 3,000 people we read, you know, they come into a koinonia, a community. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to prayer, to the breaking of bread. Uh, and, uh, and the Lord started adding to their number. It says day by day. Now, one thing I want to mention is that at this point, the church is exclusively Jews, you know, but from many parts of the world, because uh, at that time, there's what was called the uh, Jewish diaspora, and there were, there were communities of Jews, and I won't go into all the reasons why, I certainly could, but it, it's a history of centuries. There were uh, communities, populations of Jews, and most of at that time, the Roman world, and even kind of a few places beyond that. In fact, uh, historians estimate that maybe 70, maybe even up to 80% of the Jews at the time of the early church actually lived outside of Israel rather than in Galilee and Judea or Israel. So, and many of those people would come, um, not every year, but maybe every several years, depending on money and different things, they would come to Jerusalem and they would, um, you know, they'd usually kind of plan it around the time of pa Passover. And because Pentecost, which was another holiday or uh, festival time, feast time for the uh, Jews, they would usually kind of stay another 50 days and participate in Pentecost. And so you had a population, a permanent population of Jerusalem, about 25, 30,000, but it would grow up to hundreds of thousands of people, especially during the Passover to Pentecost time. So many of those Jews heard Peter preaching. They were there when, you know, with, when everything was going on with Jesus being crucified and then the, you know, being, you know, he was risen and, you know, people were seeing him all over the place. They were there. So many of the people, and estimates are maybe even a little bit more than half of the people who came to know, who gave their life to the Lord on the day of Pentecost, were actually outside of, they were, they're non-residents, you know, they're outside of Israel. But they were all Jews. And at this point, 
we see a great revival taking place. And uh, we can see this, Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Uh, the number of disciples reaches, we know at one point, about 15,000, which when you consider the permanent population of, of uh, Jerusalem was, you know, about double that, you know, that's a lot. But again, many of those people were non-residents, but they just stayed there. In fact, that's one of the reasons why there's a need for, you know, pooling money together and possessions and taking care of people. And, uh, and people were living in community, you know, and uh, they were in one heart. They were of one heart, one mind, one soul, it says. They were in koinonia and community. Well, around Acts 8, you know, things begin to kind of change. And again, we're probably 33 AD, maybe some people say 35, some people even a few years later than that. Uh, there's a great persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem. And, and you can probably expect that. I mean, you know, just think about the religious leaders who, you know, they're just seeing every day more and more people becoming followers of Jesus. And, uh, and, you know, to where, you know, about half the people in Jerusalem were probably, again, there are a lot of non-residents, were, you know, followers of Jesus. And it was causing an uproar. And, uh, and they would try to clamp down on it, but they just kept growing the more they would clamp down on, you know, the, the believers. And, um, and one of the people who, um, you know, the, the, the first martyr of the church was Stephen. You can actually read about that in, I think it's Acts 7. And, uh, you know, he's actually killed for his faith. And it says that from that point, things really got bad. In fact, uh, let, let me just kind of read, uh, you know, Acts 8, verse 3. It says, um, well, maybe verse 2, or verse 1, I will say, Saul, who was later Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and then verse 3 but Paul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them into prison well a couple things there almost everyone was scattered throughout all of Judea all of Samaria and, and, of course, this is exactly what Jesus had said in Acts 1.8. He said, you know what? You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth, right? So this is a progression that Jesus said was going to happen. And, um, and Paul, or Saul at this point, he goes after even the house churches. And, uh, and later, Saul is given the... The responsibility to hunt down Christians in other places. Now, just to just to kind of a little bit of a background on on Saul or Paul, you know, he was he was impeccable in his devotion to uh, Judaism. He was his zeal. His he was he was a model Jew. He was the Jew of the Jews, you know, and uh, and he saw that this group of Christians, these followers of Jesus, were just, they, they, were, they were just making inroads into Judaism. And they were teaching things that were, that were uh, you know, going against their traditions. And he was, he was furious. Well, as you know, uh, 
when you get to Acts 9, and we're talking about 34, 35 AD, maybe a few years later, we're not really sure, but he's on the road to Damascus with some other people. And what was he going for Damascus? He was going to chase down Christians. He was actually going to bring them back to Jerusalem and have them, you know, charged and thrown into prison. Again, these would be Jews because they're all Jews at this time. And this was a result of the, of the, uh, of the scattering. You know, they went all over Judea, Samaria, and a few places like Damascus. You know, um, and uh, and on the road to Damascus, he's blinded by this great light, and everybody else saw the light. But as he's down on the ground, he hears a voice. You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who is this? And I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, the others didn't hear that, but he did very clearly. And, and at that point, Jesus calls him to himself and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, remember, the Gentiles is everybody else except for the Jews. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes because that's where it starts. It's very important for us to understand when we get to the book of Romans. So they were, uh, so Paul gets converted. He's told to go to a certain house in Damascus, uh, to the house of Ananias. And God speaks to Ananias and says, listen, you know, uh, Saul is coming. I want you to pray for him. You know, he's a chosen instrument of mine. And Ananias obviously is saying, uh, Lord, or am I hearing this straight? Because my understanding is that he hates the Christians. In fact, the reason he's coming to Damascus is to try to drag us off. And God speaks to Ananias and says, this is what I want you to do. And of course, they connect. Ananias prays for him. He's healed of the blindness. And uh, he's baptized. He's, uh, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And... Um, and let me just kind of read Acts 9, 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, this is talking to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And so that was how God introduced Saul to him. And of course, at that time, his name is changed to Paul. Uh, Acts 26. Uh, it's a little bit longer passage. But let me just kind of read you what Paul says about his conversion to King Agrippa. This is years later. Let's kind of jump down to maybe verse 10. Acts 26. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Like, for example, Stephen. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Damascus wasn't the only place. While so engaged, I, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. They saw it. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things to which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. You know, he's sending them to, to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring to, the, to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So that was Paul's testimony years later. I'm sure it's kind of a condensed form, but you can see that he, he had a radical conversion, you know, which is kind of amazing since he was so upset and angry and furious at the Christians. It was such an encounter with Jesus that it's changed his whole life. So now we see Paul, we'll call him Paul from now on, has a season in Arabia, Syria, Cilicia, God was teaching Paul as he poured over the scriptures. And uh, Paul does pop out of hiding at times. You know, if you, we get glimpses of that. He's teaching, he's meeting with disciples in Jerusalem. And uh, you can kind of look at Galatians 1, 13 through, well, really to about the first verse of chapter 2. And so we're, we're really talking probably about 17 years. He's pretty much out of the picture. I mean, he's there, but he's learning, he's growing, God's speaking to him. And one of the things he's speaking is that he has a call to the Gentiles. So as he pours over the scriptures, he sees in the Old Testament, you know, and you know, uh, the commission to go to the Gentiles, and he sees how Jesus is the Messiah. So at this point, we see a great revival among the Gentiles. And um, maybe I should kind of just maybe mention that back in Acts 10 and 11, there's the conversion of Cornelius. And this is a big deal because he was a Gentile. Not only was he a Gentile, but he was a Roman. And not only was he a Roman, but he was a Roman and part of the Roman army. He was a commander in the Roman's ar army. And God speaks to Cornelius. You can kind of reach, read that. And he says, listen, you know, I've... Basically, I've chosen you. You know, he was seeking God. Uh, you know, call for a man named Peter. He's down. He's, uh, um, Cornelius was in Caesarea. Down the road, down the coast, in the town of Jaffa, there is Peter was staying. He says, listen, you know, I want you to, I want your, uh, I want you to go. I want you to get Peter to kind of come to you. Meanwhile, Peter is in Jaffa, or Joppa, and he is on a rooftop you know, there, and he's taking some time he, to, to pray, and he, he has a vision. And this vision is, and this is important, was this sheet, and it had all these unclean animals in it, and it kind of lowers before him, and God says, arise and eat. And 
Peter, being a good Jew, says, no, I can't do that. That's unclean food. And he goes back up. He comes back a second time. The same thing happens. Arise and eat. No, I, I, I can't. You know, I've never had anything unclean. You know, and then it kind of goes back up. You know, and then it happens a third time. And Peter's kind of perplexed. Meantime, there's a knocking at the door downstairs. And Cornelius had sent some servants and uh, maybe even a soldier or so down there. And they said, well, listen, we've, we were looking for a Peter. Is he here in this house? Because uh, our master had a dream or a vision that we were supposed to kind of come. And Peter is supposed to, to uh, kind of come. And he's got some words to share with us. So Peter comes downstairs. You know, he kind of hears what's going on. And all of a sudden it dawns on him. This is what that vision was about. So... He's a little nervous about this. He takes a few people with him. They go up to Caesarea into a Gentile house. Probably the first time he had ever been in a house by Gentiles. Now again, a Gentile is anyone that's not Jewish. And Cornelius has his family, his servants, you know, uh, you know, key friends. And they're all just sitting there waiting for Peter to share. And... Peter's kind of thinking, well, this is, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, he starts talking about Jesus and, you know, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them and, uh, and they are prophesying, praising God. And Peter and the guys with him said, well, uh, we, we can't withhold uh, baptism for him, can we? I mean, look, it's obvious God's doing something. And so they baptize him. And that's all in chapter 10 and chapter 11. The apostles in Jerusalem hear about this. That Peter's gone to a house of the Gentiles. And so they call Peter and the guys to kind of come up. And Peter kind of explains the whole story in Acts 11. And their conclusion was, well, I guess God has granted salvation to the Gentiles as well. Now, uh, you think... Didn't Jesus talk about that a lot with them? Yes, they did. Yes, he did. But somehow they just weren't quite getting it. So he was really the first Gentile that really came to know the Lord. And God made it, uh, made it a case of a Roman soldier, a Roman commander. So as they scattered out after this persecution... Some of the disciples went to Antioch. It's up there in, in uh, northern Syria along the coast. And there's a pretty large Jewish community there. And, uh, and they started preaching the gospel. And there something remarkable happens. Not only did a lot of Jews come to know the Lord, but also a lot of Gentiles started coming to the Lord. So much that, again, the... The uh, you know the, uh, the 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 leaders in Jerusalem had to kind of you know send a delegation to kind of make sure you know this was this is okay, and uh, and so we're probably talking around 46 A.D. now. So you know we're talking a long time that the church was just Jewish, you know, and and it's about this time that Paul kind of joins in the group there at Antioch, and. Um, and in Antioch, you know, not only were there Gentile believers, but there was even Gentile leaders that started kind of be emerging. And at one point, you can read about this in Acts 13, that, um, you know, that the Holy Spirit, while a bunch of them were praying, says, set apart for me 
Paul and Barnabas to the work that I've called them to. And that started a series of journeys, often called apostolic journeys, sometimes called missionary journeys, that went out from Antioch to start planning churches. And usually what they would do, they would kind of go to the synagogue first, they'd preach the gospel to Jews, uh, there'd always be, there'd normally be some Jews that would receive, but a lot of them be become angry, and so they start teaching and preaching to the Gentiles, and that's where the real fruit came. And so this happened in a lot of places, Cyprus, Galatia, Cilicia, Asia Minor, which includes Ephesus, Colossae, Greece, which includes Athens and Corinth, and Macedonia, which includes Philippi, and Thessalonia, and Berea, and, um, and pretty soon there emerged several hubs from which um, church planners would go out. Uh, Antioch is one, Ephesus was another very obvious one. And soon, and this is important, soon there were more Gentile Christians than there were Jewish Christians. And, and again, Acts 1-8 sort of kind of said this is going to happen. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, you know, go to all the nations. And uh, so this is where things get a little bit controversial and a little bit touchy because the mind of the Jews was always us and then them. And for centuries, they, the Jews had seemed to think that God was interested really only in them. He's the God of Israel. Even though the prophets were always kind of saying, no, it's to be to the nations, but they still had this uh, ethnocentric mindset. And after all, they were the chosen people of God. God had entrusted with them, to them, the law of Moses, you know. Uh, uh, and, and actually, when Jesus came and started talking a lot about the nations or the Gentiles, it was making a lot of, well, made a lot of people upset. And a lot of people were troubled by it. By the way, the Greek word ethnos means either Gentiles or nations. And again, Gentiles is everyone else. In other words, the Jews, I've said it already, but let me say it again, the Jews saw everyone else as different. In fact, they were called Gentiles. They were called the nations. So when they talk about the nations, it just means everyone else besides them. The Greeks, even though they were all Greeks, but they, that's the way they referred to everybody else. Sometimes they'd even use the word pagans. So Gentiles, nations, Greeks, pagans is how they saw everyone else. Now the Jews, I'm not talking about the Christians, were very religious in that their confidence was in their traditions. It was in the law of Moses. However, they missed the personal relationship with God. And they didn't understand how Jesus could bring them into a relationship with God, a real relationship, by giving us the righteousness that he paid for at the cross. And, uh, and even some believers in Jesus got confused about the salvation that they had in, um, you know, had in Jesus. And, and of course today there's a lot of people confused about salvation as well. But the Jewish Christians, let's talk about them, they were excited on one hand, wow, you know, God's reaching out to the Gentiles. But as it began, the Gentile movement got bigger and bigger and bigger, they became 
how should we say, a little unsettled that many of the Jewish traditions were just being laid aside. And one big one was circumcision, because circumcision was really the mark of a true Jewish male. And yeah, they understood we're in a new covenant, but this was a very, this was a, this was a hard thing for them to kind of work through. So more and more every day, more and more Gentiles were coming into the kingdom of God. Some of the Jewish believers, very frankly, were just stunned at what was happening. And uh, especially as parts of the law they weren't even following. They weren't following the traditions. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and maybe going along with that too, there's also some Jews, Jewish Christians that were beginning to have a feeling of superiority. You know, they were proud of their culture, their traditions, their heritage, and you know, understandably so. So it, it was, I mean, like the prodigal son message, I think probably really applied to them uh, in that they were kind of like the older brother and they saw all these other people kind of coming and they were kind of praising God and, and getting excited and they were kind of being raised up to be leaders and teachers, you know, in the body of Christ. And a lot of them were just kind of a little bit taken back. So Paul writes the book of Romans in 57 AD. God chose Paul to explain to everyone, Jew and Gentile, how God was working in both and how they fit together. And what better person was Paul? He was the Jew of Jews, remember? And yet he was also the first one to pioneer preaching and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So he was a perfect person to do that. Now, Paul had never been to Rome at this point. He knew some Christians, both Jews and Gentile Christians, that were living in Rome. But in the book, Paul addresses this whole problem of Jew and Gentile. He gives a complete presentation of what it really means to be saved, to be justified, about grace, about faith, and a lot of other things. In fact, it's, is the, it's the most complete uh, book of the Bible that just explains all that. Now, there's still religious people today, even within the church, aren't there? And they may go to church, but they lack what it really means to be saved. Their trust is in their good works. You know, maybe their Christian heritage. Therefore, the book of Romans is relevant to us today as well, because it addresses the problem of religious people. Actually, when I was 18, someone gave me a book. I didn't like the title at first. I didn't understand. It was how to be a Christian without being religious. I thought, wait a minute, aren't they the same? And I found out no. But basically, it was going through uh, two or three chapters of the book of Romans. And it really opened my eyes. Wait a minute, being religious is not what it's about. It's being a follower of Jesus and receiving his gift of righteousness. So there's two pillars, and I'm going to kind of wrap this thing up here. There's two pillars of our great salvation. Romans explains both of these in details. First, there's our justification. You know, that makes us righteous. That is a gift. That is something that happens in a moment in time. 
eternal life is the result. The other pillar is sanctification. Now, a lot of Christians are kind of foggy about some of this. Sanctification makes us holy. Justification, remember, makes us righteous. Sanctification is not just in a moment. It's a process. It's a process that begins when we are justified, that moment, to the time that we see Jesus face to face, either when he comes back or uh, when we die. And it's through sanctification we enjoy the benefits of the Christian life. So uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of this in Romans. And you might say, yeah, but I kind of know that. Well, the question isn't whether or not we know it up here. Are we living it? And Romans is actually a very practical book. Just in conclusion, let me just kind of read a few things that people have said about uh, the book of Romans. By the way, many scholars over the years, when they talk about who are the most brilliant people who've ever lived, Paul is always, uh, you know, in the top two or three. They point to the book of Romans as proof of that. They note the logic of the book, the flow of the book, the composition, its way of thinking. Some people, and I'm talking about secular people, believe that the Book of Romans is the most brilliant book in all of literature, through all history. It's the work of a super genius. But I don't know whether he was a genius, and I think he was obviously really smart. I think it's just an example of the Holy Spirit inspiring a man to write something, you know, and, uh, and, uh, it was God that inspired the writing. But it's that powerful that even secular people say, yeah, this is amazing. Professor Ferdley, and I think we have a slide up here. This is St. Paul's magnum opus, his masterwork, his masterpiece. Here we see him at his greatest as a constructive thinker and theologian. The epistle to the Romans is the complete and mature expression of the apostles' main doctrines which unfolds in due order and proportion and combines it into an organic whole. For the purposes of systematic theology, it is the most important book in the whole Bible. More than any other, it is determined the course of Christian thought. Martin Luther says, he just says, the masterpiece of the New Testament. William Tyndale you know, the translator of the Bible into English back in the 1500s. He says, Romans, the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and an introduction into all the Old Testament. Godet says, in studying, we find ourselves at every word face to face with the unfathomable. Chrysostom used to have it read to him twice every week. By his own express order. Can you imagine that? You know, I, I was kind of apologizing. Hey, you know, this is, you know, seventh time in about 30 years I've kind of went through the book of Romans teaching it. You know, I kind of apologize. He has it read to him twice a week. Unquestionably, the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundation truths. Then again, listen to Martin, to Martin Luther himself says about it. The epistle is the chief part of the New Testament by which he means is the greatest book in the New Testament. And the very purest gospel, 
which deserve, which indeed deserves that a Christian should not only know it word by word by heart, uh, but deal with it daily as with the daily bread of the soul. For it can never be read or considered too much or too well. So, you know, those of you thinking, well, yeah, you know, I don't know if I really need to participate in this series because, you know, I, I've read Romans before. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not an excuse. The more you read it and study, the more you need to read it even more. It's that rich. And the more it is handed, the most delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. I've found that true in my life. So to get the most out of this series, I mean, actually, I see this as an opportunity that we have to go through a book in a very systematic manner here. I want to encourage you again, read the chapter that we're studying each week, or sometimes we're several weeks in each chapter, maybe several times. Take notes, look at them again, listen and re-listen or watch the video or podcast. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would put an excitement and anticipation inside of each of us concerning the book of Romans that we would glean from it that we would that as we dig into this book Lord that you would give us greater understanding that you would make it practical for us that it would become food for the soul as Martin Luther said you know all these things we ask that you would do in Jesus' name Amen <laughs>